0: Badev, my name is Ross Asdorian, and this is Made of Armenians, a series celebrating the influential and inspirational Armenians among us. Today on the show, a former refugee of war, whose work protects the vulnerable and whose leadership gives me hope for the future. When I think of the Armenian story, it usually begins with grandparents or great grandparents fleeing genocide some 100 years ago. My guest today is not 100 years old, but she has had such a journey. Natalie Samarjan is a Lebanese-Armenian who, at age five, fled from Lebanon's compact and complicated civil war between 1975 and 1990. She has spent a lifetime learning for and in service of others. She is a lawyer with a master's degree from Carnegie Mellon, a former Dikran Tevrizian fellow, where she used that law degree to help low-income Armenian Americans in Los Angeles. And she is now the president and CEO of Coro in Southern California, a civic leadership center, or as I understand it, a medical school for civic leaders. If value is measured by the number of people you serve, Natalie is a Tesla. She has climbed a mountain to be where she is today. And she is the type of Armenian that makes me beam with pride. It's with the utmost joy that I present my conversation in this first episode with the force that is Natalie Samargin. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Ross. Welcome. Thank you. Let's go back to Beirut, where you were born. What is your mother's name and where is she from? My mother's name is Rita.
1: She is Beiruti. She grew up in Beirut, Lebanon. Her parents are indigenous to uh, modern-day Anatolia, specifically to Aintep, a small region at the border of modern-day Turkey and Syria, just north of Aleppo, and to Bitlis, a region southwest of Lake Van. My great-grandfather, my mother's uh, grandfather, was a freedom fighter, what we call a fedai, who fought in a notorious battalion in the region. And so she is a, a Beirutie. Uh, Granddaughter of genocide survivors.
0: And what about your mother is stereotypical, and what isn't stereotypical? It seems like she's been through quite a bit.
1: Oh, all the Armenian mother things um, that are stereotypical that I could bring up I don't think we have time for but I'll dip into <laughs> a few what you know my mother's story is not stereotypical she was a young divorcee who fled Lebanon had me at a very young age was leaving lebanon as a refugee at 24 as a single mother I think that that story is is pretty um, non-stereotypical if you will and her story has shaped her consciousness and her values Values. She's someone who's always been deeply committed to justice and equity. And I've been blessed to be touched by that and grateful to have had someone with her compass as a guide. So I'd say her story and the way in which it has defined her, her value system and her compass is not stereotypical. But what is, is is all of the uh, ways that Armenian mothers just worry all the time. The, um, the Armenian mother guilt is very stereotypical. Uh, and I think the sort of just the trauma that we all carry because of what our ancestors endured and the ways that it has shaped us, you know, I think that lives in, in her and as it does in all of us.
0: How would you describe what it means to be Armenian?
1: Defining identity... Uh, I think to me is complex and truly describing what it means to be Armenian is really going to differ from person to person depending on the regional, cultural, political factors that contributed to an Armenian story. And uh, there really isn't a singular Armenian experience or story. The way I think about it is uh, what is your unique Armenian story? What is your family story, and how has it shaped your relationship to the Armenian identity? However, there are certainly uh, some some threads and a deep thread that defines us. There is no question that the Armenian genocide, a colossal event, has shaped much of our thinking, our memory, traditions emotions our sense of identity and our collective sense of loss and trauma for many of us the Armenian genocide is sort of the starting point of our family stories because we don't know much about what was before 1915 because we don't have access to a lot of that history Being Armenian has therefore really been defined by adaptability, by being displaced, by being forced to adapt to different cultures, to rebuild, to reimagine. It also includes a yearning, a yearning for a place, our earth, our land, and belonging. And then, of course, being Armenian is defined by a constant fight for survival. I think we take for granted that it is in a reality in all periods of time for all tribes uh, to fight to survive, but it certainly has been one for us for millennia. Whether it be our homeland under constant attack uh, by the same forces who've sought to destroy us for ages, or in diasporan communities, uh, which we were growing up to see as sort of the silent genocide, assimilation, and the ultimate dissolution of our loss or culture, our our peoplehood, we have been defined by a constant fight for survival. Um, and so I define it as us um, being a resilient people. Being Armenian means to be resilient, to be survivors, and... Um, and to be adaptable.
0: I love it, I love that you, you reference the genocide as the beginning of a lot of our stories and not the definition of it. That really feels strong. I love that answer, I, I, I wanna keep going. You just have this innate shine since when I met you and I want to know where does your joy come from?
1: Well, thank you so much for that that question um, and, and for seeing the joy in me. Um, you know, this all wasn't promised. I'm the great-grandchild of genocide survivors who were forced to march through a desert to avoid massacre. I was born during a civil war to poverty and despair to a single mother who was trying to find a way out for us. And today, my life, my access, all of this wasn't promised. And I think often about my ancestors, our ancestors, all that they endured, and I actually believe that they demand for us to live in joy. So my joy comes from gratitude, from hope. Uh, I've lost that joy during periods of time. Most recently, of course, the genocidal war in 2020. I think uh, to be Armenian during that time was, it was to experience a dimming of joy and, a, and a, a grief that many of us had not experienced in our lifetimes. But I always want to go back and to reconnect and to find my joy.
0: You came to America. You were five years old. Did you speak English?
1: Not a word. I spoke Arabic, Armenian, and French, not a word of English.
0: Okay. So then you get here, you're an undocumented immigrant. And I think that, you know, most of us don't really know what that means, what it's like. We all have memories of our childhood. But how did that specifically affect the youth? When we think of our youth, tell me about the youth of your childhood.
1: I will say that I was not aware of it in a conscious way, growing up. I think in my adolescence and adulthood, as I've reflected back on the experience, I've been able to sort of, you know, redefine the experience through the lens of being undocumented. You know, my mother sent me to an Armenian school because Course, there was a barrier, and she was afraid of sending me to uh, a, a local public school. Uh, there were uh, there was always a, a cloud of, of fear that I don't think I fully understood. But as I reflect back, I was aware was there of of exposure. My mother took on a lot of a lot of different jobs uh, because she was undocumented, not always in the best conditions, and. Um, and so you know there was the there were the elements of the struggle that I reflect back on and realize were because we were undocumented but children are resilient and I uh, was also surrounded by the love of community growing up going to Armenian schools and um, fortunate to have family here and so I was also enveloped by a lot of a lot of love and support
0: I understand I I can only imagine what it must have been like as you realized other people had such a vastly different experience so when When you get your papers, I think that I hear about people not having papers or getting papers or showing their papers. And I think of like a World War II movie, kind of grainy footage, you know, some lover and a journalist trying to get across a line. Like, how do you get your papers?
1: A lot of pain and uh, a lot of uh, disappointment um, and a lot of tenacity on the part of my mother. And it's it's a long, long story, but I'll give you sort of the, the high level, um, you know, and things were very different in a pre nine eleven world for uh, folks immigrating from the Middle East and North Africa, like we did. Uh, I think while it wasn't easy in any way, I think there was more access and it was more open. So uh, we essentially came as uh, as vacationers for a vacation, um, which we certainly couldn't afford, and just never went back because it was a war, and um, and my mother ultimately. Uh, was, uh, received our documentation through an employer. And so there was a program, your employer could essentially, um, sort of champion you and, um, and, and support you to, to get your documentation.
0: I love that. And I think that there's probably endless stories of employers or heroes along the way that help us. And I know that you've dedicated your life to doing this. So it, it's had quite a profound effect. What I want to do is bridge a little gap here. And a lot of this is just education for me. Um, you know, I'm also a Lebanese-Armenian, but I always just say I'm Armenian from Lebanon. So can you tell me what are some commonalities between like Lebanese and Armenians? Like what is what is that commonality? What are some other, what have you found in common with other Lebanese and Armenian people?
1: You know, I can share, I'll start off by sharing that walking through Bur Chamud, which is a, a small part of Beirut. Uh, That has been an Armenian Mecca for over a century where uh, many of our post-genocide ancestors immigrated to in Beirut is is the one place in the world that makes me feel most anchored, home, solid, still. The melody of Armenians yelling to one another from balcony to balcony, stores with Armenian names, streets named after our ancestral lands, the smell of Lemajun and Borek, it's magic to, to the soul. And the Lebanese-Armenian experience is a very unique one. Armenians fled uh, to resettle in Lebanon, mostly Beirut um, and Bouchamut, but also in Antalias and Anjat and Tripoli. These are different parts of Lebanon where we've had enclaves for a very long time. Then they were met by the civil war in the 70s that lasted decades and then economic distress. So I share that to, to share that Armenians fleeing the genocide didn't just get an opportunity to l- resettle and then live in peace. There was a lot of turmoil that then they were met with. Um, and that has, I think, defined the Lebanese-Armenian and, and, off, and off also the Syrian-Armenian experience, which is not dissimilar. Uh, but there is a lot of synergy that connects the Lebanese and Armenian communities. And then within that synergy gives birth to the Lebanese-Armenian community. I think there's, you know, there's a shared uh, cuisine a lot of our food is really similar to, to Lebanese food, and we've contributed that to, to each other in Lebanon. Sometimes folks will want kebab that's marinated Armenian style, right? They come to Bouchamoud for certain food that we offer, but you know, I, I do want to reflect on the open arms with which. Armenian genocide survivors and refugees were met in Lebanon. And that has really defined the Lebanese-Armenian story and the partnership. They welcomed us with open arms, the Armenian refugees fleeing genocide. Same thing happened in Syria. And we have been loved, respected, and supported as a community in Lebanon. And that is a really fortunate relationship to rest our identity as Lebanese-Armenians on.
0: Mm. You know, it's well, first of all, it needs to pronounce Buch Hamoud. Buch Hamoud. Buch Hamoud.
1: Yeah, and, and, and Lebanese, or you know, in, in Arabic, it'd be Burs Hamoud.
0: Let's not get crazy. Let's not get crazy. <laughs> not get crazy. Okay. Um, all right. I really want to shift, you know, a little bit to your professional body of work. I mean, the backstory and the foundation is obviously incredible and could probably evolve in and of itself. You know, you have dedicated your life to service and support and leadership. And, you know, even when you talk about opening, you know, having open arms for refugees and just having that ability to understand and not only have an experience, but then have a life that follows, making it better for the people behind you, you know, th- this this part of your life where you're fighting for others, where you're improving the lives of others, you know, they have to have some guiding set of values. What, what are these, what are your guiding, what are your guiding values?
1: Well, I'll start by saying the, the, the guiding light um, is our ancestors, our story. Our survival as oppressed and displaced people has depended on whether they were Armenians or not, of, of folks who were committed to human rights, to decency, generosity, and uplift. When we think about Morgan Thau and others who've, who've really played a critical role in supporting the Armenian survival story. Uh, and so that's the guiding light. And within that has, has really sort of given me the urgency to Look around and say, we wouldn't be here without that generosity, without that commitment to human rights, to justice. And how can I not actually play a critical part in advancing that um, with the, um, you know, with the access that I have? How can I not contribute to um, a life that is dedicated to passing that on? We wouldn't be here if others had not championed that set of values. Hmm.
0: So let's say someone doesn't have your backstory, let's say someone hasn't maybe connected the way that you have or been able to unearth kind of that feeling. What, what do you tell someone who doesn't, you know, really have that grounding, you know, doesn't really know what their cause is?
1: We have the collective power to redefine the human experience. Things don't have to be the way they are. Our unhoused crisis. We don't have to actually walk and see folks who are unhoused, who have a mental illness that is uh, not being treated. We don't have to have a, you know, large number of children that go to you know, and I'm just now keeping this domestic, but of course, we can take this to an international scale. These realities don't have to be realities, but it actually takes each one of us determining a commitment to changing that within our own scope of influence within our own agency. And we all have agency. So what I would say is things don't have to be the way they are and you have agency to change it. We all have agency to change it. So get, get, you know, keep your feet moving.
0: Mm. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I want to keep hearing, you know, I don't want this to be about where you come from your story. I really want to listen to you more. And, and obviously, you know, you, your job, both professionally and I think probably anecdotally is that you teach people how to be better people, you know, and you're grounded in, in legalities, which I always tend to say that both the funniest people and the smartest people have at some point picked up a law book. And and I just love that, that you've spent a lot of time in your own head and in the field, both with your identity and with your work. Now, When you spoke at USC last year, even though you are a Bruin, double Bruin, Bruin, I always have to throw that in as it seems to be very prominent in everything you talk about. (laughs) Uh, You spoke very generously at USC um, alongside two state senators, and you talked about mixing your work and your identity. I want to ask, what are the principles that you see or that you like to see first in a leader?
1: A commitment to building self and spatial awareness. I think that that is absolutely key. Um, a commitment to sort of getting outside of one's own head, soliciting input and feedback from those around us, taking in perspectives that are different than our own, getting up on the balcony and sort of kind of watching the dance is how we talk about it at Koro. You have to be willing to do that uh, to be able to, to learn and that is... Rests on a growth mindset, so I'd say that's probably the um, the the true foundation of building self and spatial awareness. As a lifelong commitment, is a growth mindset, a commitment to learn, to grow, to be challenged, and to expand. I think effective leadership has to rest on that.
0: So, when you are looking and you're you know you're dealing with people who are you're growing or you know talking about being leaders or giving advice, how do you guide people to defining? There or, or even finding their principles and, and this is you know this doesn't have to be armenian you know obviously a lot of us like you said we begin you know we begin with this bedrock of a story but you know how do you guide people into defining and finding their own principles
1: oftentimes people actually have them they just haven't defined them and so you know i think the most um most effective way to unearth it is to get people to reflect on their own story. What are the themes? What are the threads? What are you drawn to? What do you find yourself giving back to? Uh, when you think about, um, you know, your own, you know, future self, what's the story that you want to tell about the life that you lived? It'll almost always come to surface. When people do that digging and um, their sort of reflection um, and, and the storytelling about their journey to date and what they want the, the rest of their story to come to, the principles, the values are present. It's just about allowing them to come to surface surface and then defining them. And then, of course, putting them into action. That's key. It's like, great, we can have these values, but they can't live in a vacuum. What are you actually doing to live those values out becomes the critical question.
0: I want to pause because it's interesting to me about just that point there, right? I think that, you know, people ask you what your values are and you you, go, you know, I believe in justice and this and this and this, you know, what, what do, how do we keep ourselves accountable to staying true to what we are proclaiming as our values? Like what's, what's your, what's your advice on a self-assessment, I guess.
1: That is actually a great way to say it. It's committing to a self-assessment. Keep doing that audit. It's how are you spending your money? How are you spending your time? How are you spending your social capital? And if the answer to all of those questions is self serving, then, you know, I think you probably don't pass the audit and you might need to kind of take a step back, reevaluate, and make some different decisions. Um, I think that I I love that. I love a self assessment.
0: Okay. So. I said that you were the president and CEO of Coro. However, you also have a couple other things, and I kind of want to run through them really quickly because, again, the 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 surface area of your impact and awesomeness, is in, it's impressive, and I want to make sure that I give note to this. So, first of all, you are the L.A. City Commissioner of El Pueblo, which is a historical district in L.A., and you're also the L.A. County Commissioner of Economy and Efficiency. I just kind of want to know, you have a lot of responsibilities and roles and i think that especially in the modern day very few people are only doing one thing so what makes you effective in these roles and how how do you continue to learn like what what are these roles teaching you it's both sort of the
1: technical if you will and the adaptive i get to learn about issues impacting uh, both of these committees whether it be the area of El Pueblo and learning about this incredibly important cultural site, or the um, the committee, uh, the commission on economy and efficiency, and thinking about uh, ways in which our county as a system can continue to better serve uh, its its citizens and um, and better function as a system. How can we make it more sustainable and more effective? And so I learn a lot about the sort of technical elements of moving the work forward, but I think most importantly, it's a constant question. About how I can model the civic leadership that we want to instill in our program participants at Coro through uh, you, know, you know commitment and and work on these and these committees and uh, and continuing to explore ways to contribute is uh, I think it's it's just a constant open
0: question. Hmm. You also are a board chair of Emerge California, where you train Democratic women to run for elected office. So what exactly do you look for? What characteristics would you say make for a good candidate, especially in the age where everyone believes they can become a political, uh, uh, some sort of political something?
1: I say anyone, you know... Can certainly. I think there's something really beautiful about that. It is no longer this exclusive uh, position um, that, you know, mostly historically underrepresented and disenfranchised uh, communities and, and leaders from communities who have been disenfranchised would not attempt to pursue. I, I love that there is a now an opening um, for women, for leaders of color uh, to. Step into, uh, you know, campaigns and uh, pursue positions of elected leadership, and I think the, you know, the the characteristics of a, an effective elected leader are really not any different from the characteristics and traits of a leader who would be effective in business or labor or the nonprofit sector. It's a commitment to listening, like really actually listening, not just wanting to hear what we want to hear. It's a, a commitment to service, a deep, unwavering commitment to service. It's that that compass that drives you for, for service has to be so, so strong that it Stays with you through a really oftentimes challenging career. Public service is not easy. It takes a lot. It takes a toll on people. It's not easy on a family. It's not easy on one's health and wellness. Oftentimes, um, and 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 we find that with leaders who have that really strong internal compass, that foundation, um, that it, that commitment to service, that that's the that that's the critical uh, piece that keeps driving them to to make a really powerful change that that we we need we need
0: mm. i have your last uh current job it seems like a quite a you must have quite an inbox uh is a board member on the heidi duckler uh for the heidi Tuck, duckler dance i get that
1: right yes yes
0: and this is social movement and actual dance now yes. i'm a little confused. I was told that no lawyers are also artists. So are you telling me that you are also into the arts?
1: I love the arts. I have um, always loved the arts. I come from a family that has championed the arts. And uh, it has been a tremendous honor to be able to bring my... You know, square, uh, lawyerly self uh, to an organization that serves the arts. It's Heidi Duckler Dance is an incredible organization with a vision to sort of bring to life transformative performances that bring social movement into the space of dance and physical movement. Uh, Heidi, uh, who is the um, curator and, um, and leader of the Heidi Duckler Dance Company, herself finds some of the most magnificent sites across our beautiful region and brings these sites to life through dance. And so it is, um, it is a place in which place and movement and social justice intersect for magic.
0: And what has dance taught you, a lawyer? What What has dance taught you?
1: To be more present. To be more present. Uh, I think uh, I can live in my head and dance is, is meditative, like cooking is for me. Mm. It's when I am fully and completely present.
0: I'm coming close to the end of my um, kind of resume part. But I want to take back, um, take you back a little bit to the earlier parts of your career. And again, you know, the connective tissue of being Armenian, um, you know, with this, with the Dikron Tavrizian, am I saying that Yes, yes. It's a bit better than the other one, which I've already forgotten. (laughs) Does Hamrut, I'm making it up now. (laughs) Hamrut (laughs) Hamrut. Thank you. God bless. Um, So, you know, you, you, you have this, you have, you're a fellow there and in there you somehow, which to me, this feels like a pretty big bucket item, especially for a lawyer, you created, a a new law was created because of a case that you brought to court. And that case was Montegner versus Montegner. Am I saying that right? Yes. Yes. So in Montegner versus Montegner, it was basically to ensure due process for victims and survivors of domestic violence. Now, this means, you know, as, as we talked about it, that someone can't walk into a court and basically be blindsided in what is already what I can imagine to be a very difficult hearing. So can you walk me through just exactly why this was so profound and how it laid the groundwork for your ability to believe in yourself and making a true impact?
1: It is, I think you hit, um, you you hit it right on point, Ross, you know, Actually, being in a legal proceeding as a victim or survivor um, of domestic violence is an incredibly challenging and traumatic experience. And so, just to to kind of give it an overview, in my previous role, I was an attorney, a public interest attorney, and I worked in the domestic violence advocacy space, um, specifically in family law and immigration law. And so, the case that you're referencing was a family law case in which uh, a client. Pursued a restraining order for her and her children's safety, went to court and essentially walked out with uh, the restraining order, uh, both against her, um, the opposing party and herself. She had no there was no due process. She did not have notice and the um, th- therefore the ability to build and, and support a case and uh, walked in with without any um idea that she could walk out with a restraining order against her. And so that was a critical case. We took it to the appellate court. And unfortunately, uh, that defined case law so that that can no longer happen to victims and survivors who step in, want to pursue their own safety in an already incredibly challenging and traumatic experience, and then to be themselves, um, you know, walk out with a restraining order against them as well.
0: I mean, it's funny because you say that and it sounds just bonkers. Yes. <laughs> but that yes. was totally fine. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I just, just, you know, as I learn as well, so someone walks in, they go, okay, I want a restraining order on you. And then they go, well, I want a restraining order on you. Exactly. And you're like, well, what's wrong with that? I don't want to see you anymore. Right. So what's wrong with that?
1: Well, what's wrong with that is, you know, the the beauty of our constitution ensures us due process that you can't go into, um, you know, a court of law and without the you know the notice and the time uh to you know actually support right the case against you to to sort of build your counter case if you will you can't walk out with uh you know w- with just a- an order that's thrown at you and the unfortunate reality is that within our judicial system domestic violence is still not well understood it is not um a space that is um actually supportive to, um, victims and survivors. And I think we have a really long way to go.
0: Right. I mean, I guess it, you just can't get blindsided. That was, you that's just, basically, that's it. the and, the, yeah, the moral of the story, you can't get blindsided. And, you know, let's say you do get a risk training on that that's on your record forever. That stays with right, you and right. getting that off. Good luck. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I think to, to be a lawyer, I can't imagine, I'm sure that there's an infographic somewhere, the percentage of lawyers that make a law, but that that's, I found that to be quite amazing. Um, now I'm going to move off to, um, basically how I found you and just, you know, uh, an impact for all of us. You know, the first time I think I saw your name, um, was in a tweet and it was during the Art Sock war. And, you know, there's a tweet, the series of tweets that you had sent that was just so concise about the way we were feeling and, you know, what we knew what was going on. This was very planned. Um, and I think that, you know, First of all, I had a a wonderful conversation with Harag, your husband, um, who told me, you know, the Artsakh War had a profound effect on your relationships, both to him and the diaspora. Can you tell me what it changed in you going through this?
1: For many of us, we'd, of course, grown up with uh, knowing about the genocide and the you know, very much um, with proximity to the impact that it had on our families. Right, this was in nineteen fifteen. Uh, it's, it's actually not that long ago, and it's completely shaped the our realities for many of us who whose you know forefathers um, were were victims and survivors of the genocide. But many of us hadn't actually lived through it personally, um, lived through that kind of loss, even sort of the first Artsakh war in the 90s. I think some of our parents had lived through that. You know, when I uh, talked about the war with my grandmother, she was surprised that I was surprised. And that's actually a really painful reality. She, you know, she said, of course they were going to come back to sort of finish what their ancestors had started. And that for her to have such clarity on um, on the fact that this would happen, uh, is, it was actually in, in itself incredibly painful. I think it you know, I, I shared earlier, it, it has taken a certain level of joy that I don't know that many Armenians will ever reclaim. I'd say in its, in, in, in the mo- most painful element has reminded me of still how vulnerable we are as a people. but it also has regrounded me in the power of the collective the love that we have for our people and our culture, and the will that we have for survival. And I am choosing to stay hopeful in that second part because uh, I think staying in the first and the despair that can come from that is, is too overwhelming. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to stay in,
0: in hope. Hmm. I think that you know having that urgency like you talked about and that reconnection, even though it's not the way you want to reconnect, it is something that you know for me as well again as someone who was a little more disconnected it just gives you you know perspective to the fragility of even though we know it's fragile we still sometimes can take that for granted yep um, and i think that you know when i what i what i loved about kind of you know we we all kind of became reporters of the war to our non-armenian friends and honestly sometimes to our armenian friends you know, what I loved, you just are always so well-read and, and concise and smart. And, and since the first time I, you know, I met you and talked to you, and, and again, the, the irony that I met you through my friend Mo, the, after I had seen your tweets, I was like, wait, she's Twitter famous. Um, you know, it, it, it just, it, again, it's, you never, you, you never love the context maybe, but the, the cards that are dealt are the cards that are dealt. Um, and to a certain extent, it's why we're sitting here. Um, you know, so what I what I would love to do is um, kind of end this um, with a couple questions. It is a twist on the Bernard Pivot questions. So let's start with: What is your favorite word in Armenian?
1: Abril, which means to live.
0: Mm, abril. Yeah, I like that. What is your least favorite word in Armenian?
1: Tzulvil, <laughs> which is to assimilate.
0: Oh, okay. Um, What turns you on about our heritage?
1: Everything we're creators, our story, our history is so rich. You find Armenian-ness everywhere you go, from Jerusalem to Venice, our relics from the Bronze Age. We've been a people with a cultural identity and a nation for millennia. And, you know, many of our West Asian, Middle Eastern, North African siblings, be it Assyrians, Kurds, Chaldeans, have lost or are still fighting for statehood. We can't take that for granted. Um, so I'd say our are beautiful and centuries old story
0: Mm. and what turns you off
1: it's how insular we can be. I completely appreciate that trauma has pushed us to mistrust others, and um, and and I, I appreciate that. But we must extend and connect uh, to build coalitions with other displaced people, with the global community of indigenous people who've been exiled from their land. We're not the only ones. Uh, this is not only an Armenian story. It's sadly a human story. We were screaming in a chamber during the genocidal campaign of 2020, and it was, at least for me, almost. Always other persecuted uh, people or history, you know, people with histories of persecution, my black and indigenous family stood out, right? It's the, it's the reality of cognitive empathy and we must break out of our insularity as a community and build coalitions, not only against those who oppress us, but with others who are experiencing oppression and displacement.
0: Mm-hmm. What dish do you love?
1: Oof. So I'm Eintepsi. On my mom's side, and I shared that with you earlier, my mom's, uh, my grandmother's from Aintep. And then my dad's side of the family is from Urfa. So some of the best Armenian, Western Armenian dishes come from these two regions. One of my favorites is Urfa Kebab, which is, eggplant and meat sort of lined up in a beautiful tray i love manta of course but i also just love how i've i've really moved into a almost exclusively vegetarian space and i just love how many vegetarian dishes we have in our culture
0: Hmm. what dish do you hate
1: Oh, this is so taboo. Uh, I've never been a fan of what we call misov dolma or misov salma sarma. So that's the stuffed, the mm. stuffed um, grape, leaves. grape leaves, as well as the the stuffed sort of zucchini with the meat contents. I like those with just the vegetarian versions of those. So I'd say those are my least favorite.
0: Mm. What is your favorite curse word in Armenian? <laughs>
1: this is uh, maybe esheg which is donkey. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's multiple translations.
0: Okay. And finally, if our ancestors were here, what would you want them to know about the future?
1: I want them to know that we hold them every day, that we're grateful for their will to survive, grateful for all that they did to keep the Armenian nation alive within us, that we've survived immense tragedy. We're here to stay that we're keeping our culture and traditions alive, and that most importantly, we're keeping the Armenian spirit of generosity and hospitality and kindness and innovation alive in us.
0: Hmm. If heaven exists, what would you like God to say when you arrive at the pearly gates?
1: I'd like God to say pari egar," to which I would say pari desank."
0: I don't know what that means.
1: (laughs) So when someone enters a space, um, it's sort of saying, Good to see you, and the person entering says, "Good to be seen."
0: Mm. Even better in English. (laughs) Yes, sounds so poetic when you said it. (laughs) It is poetic. (laughs) Well, Natalie, thank you so much for being my first guest. I am just honored to put you into the atmosphere. You have just inspired me, and I know that everyone you touch has been inspired. And just again, for us to meet people and know that we represent something bigger than us has been my proudest moment. Um, and not coming from the diaspora and not coming from a place where there are a lot of us. Um, it's It's been just so great to meet you and put you on vinyl or tape or whatever we call this. Um, and thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much, Ross. And if I may, as your first guest, share... Um, Thank you so much for contributing your brilliance, your vision, your uh, your skills to hold space and bring important conversations to life, to tell Armenian stories. I'm so grateful to you. And um, it's been such an honor to meet you and, and develop a uh,
0: relationship. Well, um, I would say that's... I'm going to edit that out, but I'm 100% going to keep it in, obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, how do I say goodbye properly?
1: So maybe you uh, say, Pari Yegak.
0: Pari yegak. And I say, Pari Desank. Pari Yegak.
1: Pari Desank.
0: Find more of Natalie online at nsamargin, both Instagram and Twitter. She's the only one. I'm Rosa Dorian, and this has been the first episode of Made of Armenians. Thanks for listening, and until next time, Pari Yegak.